Where is your life headed? And you may answer that question in a whole variety of different ways. If you're a kid, you may think about what you want to be when you grow up. If you're a student, maybe you think of the degree you're working on or the field that you'd like to work in one day. If you're single or dating, maybe you hope that your life is eventually headed towards marriage. If you're married, maybe you think about the kids or grandkids that you hope to have one day. In your job, you may think you may have hopes to be had to get promotions or raises or success or wealth or prestige in some way. If you're getting older, maybe you think of retirement plans or beyond. You may also not have very positive answers to this question. You may worry that your life is headed towards failure, or loneliness, or lack. You may be headed for health challenges galore, or even death. You may think your life is headed nowhere. But today, I want you to consider this question beyond the next year, or the next decade, or even beyond your entire lifespan. Like if you are a follower of Jesus, where is your life ultimately headed? Because I believe the answer is that you are bound to stand before God's throne. You are headed there. But if that's where our lives are headed, why does that matter? It, it might seem far off or vague or hardly important for today. But is it? Where we're headed, I believe, may just be the most important thing about us. And I believe that it can radically affect how we live here and now. Like, think of your... If you're driving in your car, you could be on your way to the dentist or on your way to a holiday or on the way to the ER, and your destination completely changes the way you feel, think, or act in those moments. I think the same thing happens. Our destination completely changes the way we act and feel and think now. So let's open up our Bibles together to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, as we continue our trek through this exciting book of Revelation, today I think that we're going to see some amazing truths about our destination, where we're headed. And, and pay attention, because you and I are very likely personally in this passage. Okay, there's very few places in the Bible you could say, you could point to and say, you know, this is seeing me in the story. This is one of those. Last week, we looked at chapter 6, where Jesus, the reigning lamb, poured out his wrath, his long-awaited, totally just and deserved wrath on an unrepentantly wicked world. And this happened as he broke open the, the six of the seven seals on God's scroll. Today, though, before we see him open the seventh seal, there's a bit of an interlude here. In chapter 7, it seems to give us a flashback in time to before God's wrath came, as well as a flash forward to after. In verse 1, John says, after this I saw, not 
after this it happened. Okay, it's the next part of his vision, not necessarily the next part of a chronological story. So why put this here, we wonder. Scholar Robert Mounts says that the vision here contrasts the security and blessedness that await the faithful with the panic of a pagan world fleeing from judgment. Remember, that's where we left off last week. The end of chapter 6 says, Then the kings of the earth, everyone on earth, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountain to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? Now, they might have meant that question rhetorically, meaning no one can survive. But chapter 7 actually answers that question and tells us that there are those who will stand. Look with me. Verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Remember the number four, it's a symbolic number, it symbolizes global scope. So this is a worldwide situation being described here with four angels and four corners and four winds. By the way, don't worry, John is not implying that the earth is flat here, okay? The, the corners of the earth is just an ancient idiom for every part of the world. Okay? The four winds is also symbolic, especially in apocalyptic literature, for judgment. The winds represent judgment. They were sometimes referred to as the four winds of destruction. So this picture essentially describes angels holding back God's judgment on earth. On his orders, of course. Like, when God says, let go, they'll let go. But clearly, in chapter 6, what we saw last week, the, the wind of judgment blew pretty hard against the earth and everything in it. And thus, we can start to see that, that this likely happened sometime before chapter 6. That the hurricane of, of holy wrath has not been let loose upon the world yet here. And while we may experience some forms of God's wrath today, as we saw last week, it's encouraging to know that for now, he's still holding back the winds of destruction to some extent. We, we should take this as a, a warning to repent and turn to God before it's too late. Keep going. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun likely talking about the east, where the sun rises. In the Bible, many good things come from the east. Lots of blessings from God, which fits here because this angel was carrying one of God's greatest blessings. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God. Now, this can be confusing because... This is different than the seven seals we saw earlier. It's not the same thing. Those were clay or wax seals that were used to seal shut scrolls. But this seal here is likely talking about what makes or creates those seals. 
In ancient times, this was usually a signet ring that a ruler would wear, and using the ring, they would stamp their symbol onto the seals, and that way people would know that this document, whatever it was, it bore the seal of the ruler. It bore their identity, it bore their authority, their approval, and their protection. That's the, this kind of seal. Anyway, this angel rises up carrying essentially the authority of God himself, the living God, it says, in contrast to all the lifeless gods in the world that people would worship. This God lives and moves and judges and saves and reigns. Turns out what the angel was coming to seal was people. Look at it. He came ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. We wonder why people needed to be sealed actually to set us apart as his own, to identify us as his. It's no coincidence that John calls God's people his servants here. The word doulos. So slaves in the ancient world often had their owner's mark branded actually onto their forehead, symbolized whose they were. Likewise, God's servants are sealed here to display God's ownership of them. But God's seal wasn't only meant to identify people as gods, it was meant to protect them, to keep them safe. Ephesians says that believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. In other words, we are kept safe and secure as God's people until then. That's where we're protected for redemption. And here in Revelation, it's obvious what God's seal protects us from from. And that's God's wrath. Again, verse 3, he's telling these angels who are bringing God's wrath, do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Here's the main point for us. All right, God seals his people to protect them from his wrath. God seals his people, sets them apart to protect them from his wrath. Like I've been explaining, that seal was a sign of God's possession and his protection. Now, way back in Ezekiel chapter 9, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of God's judgment on idolatry. And he sees in this vision some executioners set to go through Jerusalem, killing everyone. It's a, it's a gruesome vision. But before they do, God sends someone else to, I quote, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And then he tells the executioners to touch no one on whom is the mark. So anyone who proved faithful to God by their opposition to idolatry would be spared God's 
judgment. And Revelation is clearly echoing this vision when it talks about putting the seal on their foreheads. It says to seal all the servants of our God on their foreheads. Anyone sealed was the, the sacred property of God. So don't let judgment touch them. A believer, do you know that you have been sealed away from the wrath of God? Because Jesus bore all of God's wrath that we deserved on his back on the cross. And if you've placed yourself under his protection by faith, you are totally safe. That's good news, isn't it? Or what we saw last week. 1 Thessalonians 5, right after warning about the day of the Lord, says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And Romans 5, 9 declares, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Like we're bought by, we belong to Jesus, we've been sealed, and nothing can change that. So take heart in that. However, coming back to Revelation, we might wonder if this really applies to us. Because right after this, the people who are sealed are identified. Look with me in verse 4. It says, And I heard... The number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Ah, the 144,000. One of the most iconic, hotly contested numbers in Revelation. Really the whole Bible. Who are these people? A fair warning. I may get a bit Bible nerdy in order to answer this. Okay, But some say that the 144,000 represent an end times remnant or a, a revival of Jews who come to Christ. After all, it says they are sons of Israel and 12,000 from every tribe of Israel. Some say that the 144,000 are the only believers who will be in heaven before Jesus returns. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses famously believe. Others say this, this doesn't actually refer to Jews only, but to all believers, but only to believers who are saved in the final period of history before Jesus comes back. And some believe that the number 144,000 is a symbolic number representing all God's people of all time. This is the view I personally hold to. Although I'd hold to it loosely because there's good cases for almost every view. So why do I believe this? Why do I think this represents all God's people? Well, first of all, 144,000 is quite the loaded number. The, the number 12 
is known to symbolize completeness. Think 12 tribes or 12 apostles. So the completeness. 144 is 12 times 12. 1,000 is, of course, 10 times 10 times 10. Symbolizing this huge number, very significant number. So 144,000 is 12 squared times 10 cubed. Now, if you wanted to symbolize a huge and complete number, there probably wasn't a better number to use than this. Secondly, there are some really interesting things going on in the list of tribes here. It doesn't actually match any list of tribes anywhere else in the Bible. Judah's listed first, not the firstborn son Reuben, likely because Jesus the Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. Also, the tribe of Joseph is given, but Joseph didn't have a tribe named for him. Also, the, the tribe of Dan is missing altogether, possibly because of Dan's notorious fall into idolatry in the Old Testament. They were known for that. On that note, Considering this passage's connection to Ezekiel 9 that I mentioned earlier, it would be very logical that this is a list of those who are true worshipers of God, not idolaters, which would, of course, be all true believers. Next, Revelation has already reinforced a number of times how the church, how believers in Christ, even the Gentiles, were true Jews at heart. Echoing Romans 2, 28 and 29, which says, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And finally, in verse 3, remember it calls 144,000 sealed people the servants of God, the servants of our God. And as Kevin DeYoung explains, there is no reason to make the 144,000 any more restricted than that. If you are a servant of the living God, you are one of the 144,000 mentioned here. In Revelation, the phrase servants of God always refers to all of God's redeemed people, not just an ethnic Jewish remnant. Okay, that's how I believe it. You can take another view if you want. That's okay. We can still call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. <laughs> but now that we've unraveled the mysteries of the universe, let's sum up here, okay? God seals his people... And whether or not the 144,000 includes all believers ever, this is still true of us. We know from God's word. We have been sealed for the day of redemption and are not destined for wrath. In this, we can rejoice and express our thanksgiving to God. It's an unspeakable privilege and honor to be set apart as his own and to not have to face the wrath that we totally deserve. Now, this does not mean that we are protected from all suffering here and now. Not at all. Just a few verses before this, martyred saints were crying out for justice. We still face all kinds of effects of sin, even death. We face the devil's wrath. But, no 
ultimate harm, no eternal harm, no harm that truly lasts can ever befall us because God's wrath and judgment have been taken away in Christ. Grant Osborne says, Revelation forces the reader to realize what really matters, the earthly or the heavenly. God protects the vital part, the soul, but allows intense suffering in this world. Ask yourself, what's more important? What happens in these 80-ish years, this light and momentary life? Or what happens in 8 billion years? Verse 9, we get John's hint that he's seeing a new scene. It says, after this I looked again. However, John's focus here is still on the people of God. This chapter is all about God's people. And here he describes them majestically. I think it's likely describing the same crowd as the 144,000, just seen from an alternate time and perspective. See, in verses 1 to 8, we get this one scene of God's people still on earth, needing to be sealed and protected. Some scholars say that it's describing them as Jesus' army assembled on earth. But in verse 9 and forward, God's people are now seen around God's throne in glory. This would be the church victorious in heaven after all the battles have been won. And in these verses, we get a glimpse of the purpose behind it all. And we saw how God's people are sealed or spared from his wrath. But why? What was God trying to do? What are we saved for? Here's what. God saves his people for his worship. We are saved to declare his praise. God saves his people for his worship. In verse 4, John heard the number of the sealed, but he doesn't say he saw them. In verse 8, he sees. Okay, let's look with him. Verse 9, sorry. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now there's so much to notice and marvel at here. (laughs) So we'll go a little bit, we'll pause here on verse 9 and study this. First, how big was this multitude. Okay, after this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Now remember the ginormous crowd of angels that John estimated the size of in chapter 4? Thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads. This is bigger than that. I mean, he just numbered 144,000 people. This is bigger than that. Millions stretching as far as the eye could see. And who made up this great multitude? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. 
Now, this echoes God's promise to Abraham to make him the father of a multitude of nations. It's also a glorious picture of God's heart for all different kinds of people. Notice, we maintain our distinctiveness and diversity in heaven. Who you are now matters, and God wants to preserve the ethnic, tribal, and linguistic diversity of his people because it's beautiful. I love what Shay Lin says here, that the Lord Jesus Christ is so glorious that one people group is not enough to reflect his greatness. He wants all of them. Notice here as well how successful this means the Great Commission will be. People will hear the gospel and be saved from every people group on earth. Isn't that great? And we get to play a part in that right now. Next, look at where this great multitude is located. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Again, chapter 6 asks the question, who can stand before God's face and before the Lamb? And here's the answer. It's magnificent. God is going to show mercy to multitudes. And we will stand, not cower or flee, before God's face and before the Lamb. Like, who can stand? If you're in Christ, you can raise your hand here and go, I can. (laughs) And if you saw how spectacular, like the spectacular holiness of the one seated on the throne in chapter 4, And the awesome power and authority of the Lamb in chapter 5. And his great and terrible wrath in chapter 6. You'll understand just how astonishing this is to stand before God. And finally, what is this crowd doing standing before the throne? from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, the white robes are both a symbol of pure righteousness and of victory. And palm branches were a sign of rejoicing, really, festivity. It might remind you of when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and people broke off palm branches to wave them in celebration. And I think that's actually a good scene to recall here because... The crowds there acclaim Jesus as the son of David, the coming king, and shouted, Hosanna, save us. And here, a far greater crowd stands before the throne of the son and the heir of David. They're still waving palm branches. They don't shout Hosanna anymore. Because they don't need to. They've already been saved. Hosanna has been fulfilled. 
So now, they sing about salvation accomplished. Look at verse 10. And they're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I just try to imagine the deafening roar of that kind of praise. The focus is no longer on wrath, but on salvation. Salvation is God's possession. It comes from him and him alone. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, Christian, do you get that this is where we're headed? Like, this is our final destination. If we think we'll be bored by this, we obviously don't grasp what this entails. Perfect love for one another, no matter where we come from or who we are, united. Perfect worship of God, undivided hearts. Question for you Does anything in your life remotely resemble this now? I say that to show like nothing compares to this on the one hand. On the other, say like we should be echoing this now. It's glorious. Do you worship God as your king and your savior? Do you praise him with your whole heart? It's why you were created. It's why we are saved. And it's where we're headed. The worship of God's people arouses the worship of heaven's full courts again. Look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, it says that angels are intensely interested. They long to look into our salvation. Here, they see it come to fruition, and they can't help but erupt with praise. Amen. They say, like, they can't help but agree with God's people's cry that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then they add, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Again, seven kinds of worship. God deserves perfect praise. Some of these things... God already has in perfection, and we cannot add to them. We can just praise him for them. With glory, wisdom, power, and might. The other things, we can give him whatever we have in order to worship him. Our, our blessing, our praise from our lips, our thanksgiving from our hearts, our honor. 
the angels say, may these things be praised and multiplied and given to God forever. And then they can't help but agree with themselves. Cry out again, amen. Let it be so. Do you agree? So we are saved from God's wrath. We're saved for God's worship. But what we haven't seen yet is what we're saved to. The glories waiting for us in eternity. Verses 9 through 12 describe what we give to God. But then in verse 13 to 17, they describe what God gives to us. Because contrary to what we might imagine, this was like an aha moment for me this week, contrary to what we imagine when we get to heaven, God will not just be lounging around on his throne soaking up our praise. As if he's done working forever and now it's our job to keep the party going. I mean, He's always designed us to be in a two-way relationship with him, giving and receiving. How does, it, it's, his, it's his nature and his delight to eternally give, to pour out to his people. How does the Westminster Catechism put it? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what we see here is God's people getting to enjoy him forever. Here's the point, that God washes his people to satisfy them with his presence. God washes his people so that he can satisfy them with his presence forever. In verse 13, John gets asked a question. It says, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John's taken aback. I said to him, sir, you know. <laughs> and I think in other words, why are you asking me? You know better than I. <laughs> and sure enough, the elder does know the answer. He said, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there's some uncertainty there. When it says they're ones coming out of the great tribulation, we don't know for sure whether this only refers to end times believers, like those who live, maybe die, during an especially intense time of suffering before Christ returns, or if this great tribulation that he speaks of refers to all God's people's suffering throughout history. After all, back in chapter 1, John said he was in the first century that he was a partner in the tribulation. I'd lean towards that latter view that this is talking about all of God's suffering, all of God's people's suffering, even though I do believe that our suffering will intensify before the end. But this can encourage us that no matter how great our suffering gets today, that is not our end. Like, even if it ends our lives, that is not our end. Standing before the throne is our end. Now, whenever you hear of a, a big event here on earth, if there will ever be any big public events again, 
like a, maybe a big political rally for your favorite politician, a huge concert from your favorite band or artist, or a championship game from your favorite, that your favorite team is playing in. We might think, what do I need to get there? Right? You might need access, you might need money, you might need to travel, you might need tickets, you might need babysitting, the list goes on. But what we need in order to get to the throne room of heaven may be surprising to you. We just need to be cleaned, washed. The, the white robes are our ticket in. So how do we get white robes? By washing them, though not in water. Since they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We can't supply our own cleaning materials. Our, our stains go too deep. We need the blood of the Lamb. And paradoxically, red blood washes white. I know there may be those of you listening today who don't yet know Jesus as your Savior. And right now, we believe your spiritual clothes are not clean. They are filthy with sin. This is all of our state without Christ. The only way, the only way that any of us will make it to this glorious scene one day and not the horrific scene that we saw last week of God's just judgment is by washing ourselves in the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, which we do by believing that it can save us and trusting that it will. Bringing our sins to the Lord repentance and wash me Jesus I have no other hope but you salvation from sin death hell only comes through God it belongs to him right it doesn't come through ourselves or our own efforts what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus so if you have not done this yet I hope you will let Jesus wash you clean today. Stake your trust on him. We'd love to help you if you need help in doing this. But it's this very gospel, this good news of Jesus, that, that opens the door to all the other blessings from God. Look with me. Verse 15 says, therefore. So we've been washed in the blood of the lamb, therefore. Then get a hold of this list. This describes the blessings of dwelling in God's presence. He, he washes us so we can live in his presence. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God. We get access there. We get to live there. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And like it said in chapter 5, the lamb has made us priests to our God. Or as D.A. Carson loves to say about heaven, you'll get a real job there. A job that really matters forever. A job that will be totally fulfilling. As his servants, we'll get to do what we were made for and we'll love it. And we'll do it tirelessly. 
Day and night, it says. No weariness. Now, who wouldn't love to work with no weariness? And it says in verse 15, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Literally, this says he will spread his tent or tabernacle over them. Remind us of God's glory and presence dwelling with his people, his Shekinah glory. We'll essentially spend eternity in a heavenly holy of holies and thus be perfectly holy, perfectly protected, and perfectly loved. Like if God promised in Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. But the benefits of God's presence don't end there. Verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That's almost a direct quote from Isaiah 49. It also sounds a lot like what Jesus claimed once. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a picture of of total and lasting satisfaction. It doesn't mean we won't eat or drink anymore. Actually, on the contrary, almost all pictures of heaven include pictures of feasting with food and drink and banquets. So this is saying something else. It says we won't need to eat or drink anymore. In God's presence, our needs will be fully and completely satisfied. Nothing will even be able to harm us physically anymore. It says the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Like the natural elements can't touch supernatural bodies. And then focus in on the final verse. This is why we'll be so incredibly blessed in God's presence. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, why will we get real jobs and great responsibilities? Why will we be sheltered and protected under God's tent? Why won't we go hungry or thirsty anymore? Why won't we get hurt anymore? Because of God's continual loving work on behalf of his people. For the lamb in the midst of, their of the throne will be their shepherd. This is where it says the lamb is actually occupying the throne, right? He's not just in front of the throne. He's in the very midst of the throne. He reigns. But can you wrap your head around that picture there? The, the irony, the lamb will be the shepherd. The lamb will be the shepherd. Shepherds care for their sheep. They feed them. They guide them. They protect them. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
And we have all that we could ever need, and that satisfaction will be tangibly and gloriously felt in eternity. It makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. That's what our shepherd will do for us. Leading us to, to springs of living water. Water that truly satisfies. So he quenches our thirst. Our shepherd leads us to life in all its fullness. The whole bunch of metaphors there which all describe God's loving care for his people. Like personalize this. Okay? Picture yourself there with Jesus himself providing for your every need until you have no other need but him. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And finally, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is super personal. Notice it doesn't say they'll stop crying. It says, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isaiah 25, 8 and 9 promises that in the end, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us indeed rejoice, even if through tears now. Because one day there will be no more tears. And God will take away all grief and pain and sorrow. Today, today we are never quite satisfied with where we live, no matter how luxurious it is. Today we toil at thankless and tedious jobs, growing tired all the time. Today we Need three square meals a day and lots of liquids just to stave off misery. Today, we, we can get hurt and harmed in so many different ways. Today, we can feel directionless, lost, or frustrated with where we're headed in life. And today we grieve, cry, and ache at all the sickness and suffering and death around us and in us. But on that day, on that day, all that will be gone. Like, this is beyond our wildest imaginations. Grant Osborne asks, how can anyone read this passage without a sense of worship and overwhelming awe? 
How can any Christian meditate on it without reaffirming his or her commitment to put the Lord first in everything? Can any earthly achievement begin to compare with this scene? We'll have true shelter, no danger, true meaningful work with no weariness, true satisfaction with no deprivation, true guidance with perfect leadership, true rest and refreshment and life in all its fullness, true joy without sorrow, true care from a, a loving shepherd who already proved his love for us by laying down his life for us. And all of this, because of God's glorious presence, and because the Lamb shed his blood to get us there. As a follower of Jesus, where are you headed in life? What are you aspiring to? What's your hope in? Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father in heaven, let this be so soon. Send Jesus back. Right the wrongs. Right the injustice. Take away the hurt, the pain, and the aches. And not for our sake, the sake of your name that we will get to declare one day with all the saints how amazing you are and that salvation belongs to you alone. so great. Fill our visions with this, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.